everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bottom-Up Revolution. I'm your host, Tiffany Owens-Reed, and today I'm joined by Marcus King. He's a licensed architect, practicing urban designer, and small-scale developer operating out of Detroit, Michigan. Originally from Detroit, he returned home about a year ago after spending a decade in Washington, D.C., and now runs a design firm that specializes in incremental development projects. His work is driven by a desire to see a more sustainable future for his city by providing human-scale neighborhoods that are accessible to a wider variety of people across the socioeconomic spectrum. In addition to running his firm, Marcus also serves as a faculty member of the Incremental Development Alliance and is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Architecture, Preservation, and Planning. Marcus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tiff. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited we finally get to talk. I feel like I've secretly been trying to find excuses to talk to lots of people that I've had the privilege of meeting, including yourself. Uh, We met a while ago at CNU in Seattle. I think we just, yeah, had some fun conversations there. So I'm glad we finally get to get to connect again and, and talk about all things development. Um, but you were, so you were living in DC at the time, but you're originally from Detroit. So just to kick things off, um, can you just tell us a little bit about that, uh, that journey for you and like what brought you back home? Uh, the journey uh, is essentially me uh, just really falling in love with the region. I, I, when I first moved out in that area, it wasn't DC sort of DC proper. It was actually Maryland to uh, Bowie, uh, Bowie Marion, uh, Hyattsville or College Park, Maryland to go to school. Uh, so I went out there for grad school. And uh, again, I just fell in love with the area. I would visit uh, many times as a kid, uh, high school kid. I have some cousins that live in, in Bowie, Maryland, not too far. And every time I would visit, you know, I would, you know, we would get the, you know, the the typical tourist treatment, you know, go in, see the city, see all the sites. And for me, as a as a kid, seeing things like a functional metro and all sorts of restaurants and activities and museums and people walking and biking in the street, I had never seen that before, especially coming from Detroit. So it was just sort of this whole new world that captivated me as a, a you know young teen trying to figure figure things out. And so I think that, those are the initial moments that that captivated me to that area. And Initially, I wanted to go out there for uh, undergrad. I don't. I don't think I was quite ready to do that as a as a young eighteen year old just graduating uh, high school at that particular time. I probably needed a little bit more growing up to do for myself. <laughs> but grad school was my opportunity to move out to to Maryland to to be amongst the city that I fell in love with. You know, at that time, decade, fifteen years prior, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just loved it. Fell in love with it. Stayed out there for ten years. Met a variety of different friends, uh, family, mentor people. Ended up meeting my wife there, who I convinced to move back to Detroit with me. Um, and yeah, ever since then, uh, just really just trying to you know, reconnect and find my roots here and my my footing here in my in my hometown again. Um, now that things are, I would say, completely different. Than, yeah, uh, the condition I left it in. Can you tell me more about what kind of sparked the decision to move back? You know, I always wanted to. Even when I first moved out, I had always had this desire to move back. I think I did it in a a sooner time span than I had originally thought. You know, I Mm -hmm. I think I originally thought I was going to be out there for, you know, 15, 20 years. And it just sort of seemed like it was time. I just got my architect's license. I was practicing managing projects for the uh, firm I, I I was working for. Um, I had a, a lot of experiences traveling both across the country doing projects, but also doing some international projects. I had lived abroad for a little bit. So I, I got this sort of global view of the world and got the opportunity to study a lot of cities. And I just felt the need to want to bring some of that knowledge, some of those experiences that I had back to a place that, you know, I thought could need that, you know, could could need mm-hmm. that level of thinking and that level of uh, investment from its people into the city. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was really the motivation. And I just saw so many great things happening in Detroit. Every time I would come visit, there were just, you know, you see cranes and and places that you wouldn't go when I was in high school are now popping now. So it's like, wow, <laughs> completely, 
you know, different and amazing. And I loved it. I just loved the energy. And so I just, you know, had to come back and try to be a part of that in some way. Yeah. I remember when Detroit went bankrupt and I actually lived in Detroit for a summer in 2014, I believe, lived in the Brightmore area. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just curious from your perspective as someone who's actually from Detroit and, you know, watched it go through all this turbulent experience. And what do you think has been uh, instrumental in helping the city come back? That's a great question. Um, I think it's multifaceted, the answer to that question, but I think at the core of it is really the resilience of Detroiters. Um, I think for so long, you know, nowadays it's kind of weird to think about it like this, but because, you know, Detroit is sort of like, you know, the hot, one of the, you know, hottest cities, I think, in the country, just in terms of like conversation. But, you know, for a while, Detroit was just like the place that at least in hyperbole and in, in conversations folks would have with people, uh, particularly folks that had never been here, you know, it was the place that you just didn't want to go for some reason. And I felt this, too, when I was as I was growing up, but I also felt it from my own family members and, and friends. You know, we felt and Detroiters felt like, you know, people had forgotten about us. They it felt like nobody cared And so there was this sort of like self-reliance that that a lot of Detroiters had and still have today. Mm -hmm. And had it not been for that sort of self-reliance and that, you know, okay, nobody's coming to say this. We're just going to do it ourselves type Mm -hmm. thing. Had it not been for that spirit of Detroiters that that lived through the hardest times. I don't I don't know if Detroit, you know, would have sustained itself to a level to to be able to take advantage of like new investment like it's doing now. So I really mm-hmm. think the core answer is just like the resiliency of the people, like seeing uh, but one of the the chief stories I like to I like to uh, tell to allude to this sort of self-resiliency is the 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 arrival of like all these different um urban gardens or really urban mm-hmm. farms really more than gardens. And that really came out of a necessity because there was a period mm-hmm. of time where there was maybe like one or two grocery stores in the entire 140 square miles of the city. And, you know, Detroit is, Detroit is a traditionally car centric uh, place. And so you had a lot of people, mainly elderly folks that, you know, couldn't get around, but they needed to get food. And so you just and you had these swaths of land that were just available and so people in their own individual neighborhoods just took it upon themselves to grow their own food right and you know the city wasn't at the time wasn't doing anything so i'm just gonna commandeer this parcel and start start a farm and grow that's it that's it that's exactly what i saw in brightmore which i believe you're familiar with they Mm -hmm. i lived there for about eight to ten weeks and um, I saw the exact to start planting gardens, planting flowers, painting houses. They would do their own street patrol, protecting homes from people who were coming to try to scrap the copper. I actually lived and worked like right alongside them. And uh, it definitely was a model for uh, self-reliance. And uh, I think at one point they brought goats in to like yeah. eat the grass. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. I think that that yeah. that got some news coverage, which was pretty oh, yeah. funny. But oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, I just love that that whole concept of, of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk incremental development. I, I'd love to 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 hear more of your story about how you came came to this mm-hmm. uh, world of what we might refer to for the rest of the podcast as ink dev. <laughs> yep. But I know from just knowing a little bit about your story that you started off, started off with an interest in architecture. Can you just kind of map out that journey for us? Um, how you started off in architecture, now you're working in the ink dev world and, and doing some pretty cool projects in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. So like from the very beginning for me, uh, architecture is more born out of my experience with the trades. Um, my father is an electrician and being around an electrician, you know, I got to be around other tradesmen. Um, he also worked for the local cable company here. And I remember distinctly him taking me as like a really small child to the office. And I would see, you know, just all these like blueprints of like fiber optic cables that are going to be put underground. It just looked like a bunch of, you know, black line spaghetti. Um, <laughs> but it was super cool to me as like a kid. Um, and so th- those are like my very first memories as of of being introduced to like schematics and plans and things like that. And then as I got older, I, I w- I've always been artistic. You know, I remember some of my first 
the first things that I drew were like car- my own cartoon books and things like that, Dragon Ball Z characters. So I've always been artistic, but I always had this sort of technical part of my mind again because I grew up in the trades. And so uh, it wasn't until high school when my mother put me in this like high school architecture program. And I didn't want to go because I'm a high school kid. I want to go, you know, do what young high school boys like to do and go <laughs> run around and all that stuff. But it was life changing because it, it for the first time I saw how I could like utilize the artistic side of what I love to do, but also combine it with, you know, some technical acumen as well. And from there, it was just sort of like full steam ahead on architecture. I had no idea how I was going to get there. And it, you know, I was very fortunate to have people around me to help guide me. But, you know, that that was sort of the the beginning of my architecture career. Uh, and that brought me all the way to D.C., as we talked about. Um, but then I got to work in, in architecture as an architect. And I remember the moment that I, I knew I wanted to get more into development. It was... It was like the third project that I had been given or assigned to in this particular firm that I was working for in D.C. Great, great, great local firm. You know, they taught me a lot, taught me a lot how to be an architect, how to run a business from an architecture side. But it was just the third project they gave me to work on. And, you know, we get all the way. I think we actually got the permit for this job. And it was going to be like this really, really, um, you know, nice tower in U Street. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to have a building on U Street, historic U Street in DC, you know, that I designed uh, with, with, uh, in, in, in cahoots with my team. Like, this is going to be amazing. And we got the permit and then we get the pricing back and the pricing is like, just blows the complete project out of the water. And the developer comes in and makes the decision that I can't build this right now. And that had happened to me three times. And so at that moment, I was like, what is it that's what 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 are the levers that are being pushed and pulled on mm-hmm. that are making the decisions to why I can or cannot build this building? Right. Because I want to I want to do stuff. I'm not just drawing pretty pictures to draw pretty pictures. Right. Right. Like I, I want to have a portfolio built work. And from that moment on, I, I, I continued to work as an architect, but I would spend like my spare time you know, this is when I was still single. So I could, you know, just spend all my waking time, like, just like devoting myself to teaching and being around developers of a particular mind. And that's really when I stumbled upon incremental development in Silver Spring, Maryland. I met folks like John Anderson, Monty Anderson, Grayson, um, all, all the folks that, you know, we sort of traditionally associate with Inc. Dev. That's when I met those folks and they took me under their wing. Um, uh, allowed me to be and kind of, you know, look in from the outside on projects. I went through the course myself, you know, so I, I did everything. And and now, again, it's put me in a position where, you know, I can work for developers, I can speak that language, and I can also do projects at the smaller scale myself. So that that's, that's my journey, like transitioning from architecture solely to like being architect and developer, right? Um, and I'm still shaping that career as well, too. You know, yeah. For people who might not really understand, like I actually found myself trying to explain the difference between development and incremental development to someone. Uh, actually, last night I was talking to a friend on the phone, and I, I realized I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I exactly know how to explain this and why mm-hmm. it's valuable. I kind of do, but there are ways I could definitely get better. So, just as someone who's in the field, can you, can you just explain like why incremental development? What is it that really like energizes you about it? Why should we care about it? Why is it important for our cities and our neighborhoods? Oh man, we could, we could have a whole podcast just on that one question. <laughs> um, but uh, so the the comparison I would give is traditional mainstream development is really about you know looking at a parcel and uh, what I like to, to to call looking at looking at it from a very solitary perspective. Your only focus, for the most part, is looking at how I can extract, build, do something on this particular parcel. Uh, you know, with blinders on and how can I get the most out of that, um, put the most on it and get the most out of that, right? That's really mm-hmm. your concern. Typically developers in that um, in that realm, uh, not always, but typically uh, the people that are doing those projects are your institutional developers, developers that probably don't live in that neighborhood, 
you know, so there's a different level of sentimental attraction to that particular project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 here's the kicker: usually, uh, because that there's a certain type of developer that's doing those projects, that means the um, profits, the wealth that's generated, um, if it's if it's any generated at all, is being extracted from that that development from that community. And then diverted to wherever you know that particular developer is is uh, is 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 located. Right now, again, people will argue, okay, yeah, but you know we're activating that neighborhood, right? We're providing jobs or places for people to stay. Um, but but again, a, a lot of the wealth that's generated from development has the potential to be generated from development is from being a part of the actual team, right? And so incremental development sort of grounds that process in local context, right? Mm-hmm. Usually we're talking about people that are familiar with an area, that care about an area, that live in that area. And so now the projects become more than just a development to them. In fact, the projects, the project is actually not that particular parcel or that particular building. The entire project, we like to say, is the entire neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're adding things to a collection of buildings to help build the entire neighborhood up, right? And so the 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 focus and the perspective becomes less solitary, less uh, tunnel vision, and it becomes much more broader, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the button on that is if you're able to get multiples of incremental developers doing the same thing in a concentrated area. Now we're talking about not just building value for that particular building and that particular developer, but now we're talking about building value for the entire neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which is, I think, the the key and core difference between more traditional mainstream development and development that's incremental and small scale. Um, mm-hmm. There's different time frames to that. You know, traditional development is usually in and out. I need, I'm putting this money in, let's do something, I'm pulling my money out, right? Small scale incremental development has the opposite time frame, right? You're you're farming, you're tending to that farm, you're you're cultivating it, watering it, harvesting it carefully, right? Until it actually produces something. And that takes time, just like yeah. actual farming does, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like what you're getting at is just this 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 idea of thinking of neighborhoods and cities as from more of a holistic perspective rather than just each lot on its own, which is definitely something that um, I see in a lot of cities was just like random projects randomly right next to each other and not not a very strong, coherent vision for like, well, not, not let's think beyond the lot. Let's think about the street. Let's think about the block. Let's think about the neighborhood. Um, And it sounds like part of what you're saying is that the incremental development approach really does is more of a holistic approach. Um, And and I think this is reflected a bit in the name of your company, right? So fabric, fabric design. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Pretty much what you said, that's where the name sort of comes, comes from, um, you know, me, me being an architect, we're, we're taught in architecture school, uh, most architecture schools, um, not all, but most architecture schools, you're sort of taught to sort of be this sort of unitary designer, or you need to have an avant-garde design each and every time, right? But when you actually look at cities, both past and present, it's really the fabric buildings or soldier buildings, as some people like to call them, the ones that are in the background that are much more modest, uh, smaller in scale, but they're the actual buildings that help to form the spaces that everyday people interact with on a daily basis. That They're mm-hmm. the fabric buildings that hold the city together. And every now and then you'll have like that signature building, you know, you know, think Manhattan, where you have like the signature, you know, Manhattan almost operates as one sort of icon on its own with like the borough, the outer borough sort of supporting it in terms of the fabric. But you think of um, places like, you know, downtown Chicago, where you have signature skyscrapers, right? That's only a, a, a fraction of the city. It's all the stuff that's around that, those fabric buildings, those soldier buildings that uh, would hold the entire city together. And so that's that's indicative of the type of work that I like to do as a, as a designer, as an architect, an urban designer, but also the work that I like to advocate for both in my own on my own and through people that I work alongside in terms of development as well. Because again, that's the stuff that's going to be here for, you know, if it's done the right way, hopefully centuries, right? Just like some of our own precedent cities uh, have shown us, you know, there's a reason why we love places like DC and Boston and, and, and Philly 
uh, Charleston, right? These are older cities, but they have really, really good fabric buildings that have been reinvented over and over again, right? Framework is good, the bones are good, and we can reinvent uses, but that fabric is 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 timeless. And I know from talking to you that another part of kind of your approach is thinking about not just the types of buildings that sustain the fabric of the city, but also thinking about what you build from the perspective of of life itself. Like what kind of life are people going to be leading on this mm. street, right? Like on this block in this neighborhood and and thinking on thinking about how you design and build from that perspective as well. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? I mean, that, that's where the urbanism comes in, I think. Again, one of the reasons why I like dealing and, and working with Ink Dev is because you have the, the the development side of it, but then it's sort of laced, you know, being born out of uh, the Congress for the New Urbanism. It's sort of laced with these these elements of, yeah, we need to we need to make buildings that you know are profitable, and that you know solve you know these sort of local objects and 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 and, and issues. Uh, but it also needs to have like some basic urbanism to it, because, again, you you can't think about, you know, your project as the one and only thing. Right. These projects exist alongside other projects. And once you can string a bunch of them together, they actually help create good urbanism if they're done in the right way. And then simple things like, you know, making sure, uh, you know, depending on the context, making sure certain buildings front the street the right way a basic understanding of fronts and backs, you know, fronts meaning where's your front door, where's your porch, where's your stoop, backs, things like, you know, servicing your garage or servicing trash and recycling, utilities, right? All that stuff goes in the back, right? So it's really simple stuff that I think, you know, as, you know, we we venture more and more away from the 20th century, we're getting back to some of our roots of like, you know, how we've, we've been designing and, and living in cities for most of human history. We had a little hiccup in the 20th century, but we're we're, we're getting back <laughs> to it. So, um, well, it, it sounds like you really you really understand the connection between how our cities are designed and what that allows in terms of like the design of our lives in a way. You know, mm-hmm. like what kind of lives people can lead based on the design of their neighborhood and the design of their city. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the to to your original question. I mean, that's that's where the importance of you know like walkability comes mm-hmm. into play, right? Like. It was not too long ago when like cities, again, just were by osmosis walkable, right? Because they had to be. We didn't have, you know, cars and rail and all that stuff, you know, and you had and you had the most of the population were living in cities in these like really walkable places. And now that sort of got, you know, broken up. Um, and 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 now again, we're it's almost like we're trying to reintroduce these principles back back to to people at scale, right? And that's where like this affordability issue co- also comes into play too, because you know if 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 walkability and living close to uses and your job and recreation all that is important, and we need to be able to make that affordable and accessible for everybody. Um, for a variety of reasons, not just the affordability issue, but the sustainability and environmental issues. It can't just be the people that can afford to live in and in, into in walkability now because it's hot now. You know, it's the hot term, it's the hot trend of development. Um, you know, we we gotta find ways to 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 allow everybody to be able to access quality neighborhoods, access walkability. Um, access a grocery store or their school or their job, whatever the case may be, so that again we can sort of you know flip the 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 trend that we were on in the 20th century, right? And yeah, it, it goes back to lifestyles, right? I always think, man, can you imagine what kind of neighborhoods we would have if if we started with asking people like, tell us about your ideal life, like how much mm-hmm. time would you spend commuting around, like mm-hmm. how what what would your street look like, like um, would you would you be able to take walks? Like, what would yeah. your kids be able to do? You know, just really get people to imagine. Yeah, I mean, a good charrette exercise, yeah. right? Um, yeah, yeah. Just just to put people in a position of kind of like imagining the rhythm and pattern of life that they would actually want, and then kind of help them see, like, you yeah. know, it, it's kind of like user based design almost. You know, starting yeah. with the starting with the user in mind and thinking about what do what do people need what do people want from their street from their block from their city and then working backwards from there to let that shape 
the design process rather than the process we have now, which I feel like kind of orbits around efficiency, predictability, you know, kind of marching in step with the pattern that's been established because we know that it's the one that will work like from the market perspective, right? Because it's predictable, but that's not always the same thing as, I I think that's, there's just so much room for conversation there. Kind of the gap between the the way we've been doing cities in neighborhoods since the 1950s and the lifestyle and the feeling and the pattern thousands of dollars you know flying all over the world to go to different you know to walkable dense pretty cities mm-hmm. i mean i think and tell me if i'm wrong i sort of feel like most of us in this space have had that experience even before we knew we were having that experience like the story i gave at the beginning of our conversation about like me going to dc and like feeling like the energy around the walkability, I couldn't recall it or like tell you why, but it was just like, oh, right. this is great. Like, I feel like most people can like tell you what they want they, they if they're in it because it's a feeling, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I want to be able to go see my friend down the street or, you know, whatever. But to your point, there's like, there's a way to get that. There's like a calculated way to be able to cultivate that, that life. And I think that's that's the sort of that's the sort of thing that needs to happen more is like how can you take these feelings that I feel like the majority of people can verbalize mm-hmm. through expressing their feelings and then again provide that technical acumen to kind of say to get people to see, oh yeah, this is what you're talking about, right? This right. is why you have that feeling, right? Yeah, no, it's the same exact thing happened to me where I moved to New York City for college, had never been before. Mm-hmm. I had no concept of city versus sprawl versus dense. I, I had no language. I yeah. just knew like New York City was magical. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> and it wasn't until leaving and then reading read, reading Jane Jacobs that I was like, oh my goodness, this is yeah. what I was experiencing, right. you know, but I didn't have the language for it. I just kind right. of, I knew what it looked like, but I couldn't tell you like, oh, the magic of looking out the window in the morning to see what everyone's wearing as a way to get a feel for the weather. Like that's yeah. kind of how it feels. Yeah, like, I love that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> or love that. I don't know, just all these little things that sort of line up and yeah, you don't have language for it until someone yeah. kind of comes along and they're able to yeah. help you put those experiences, match it to a pattern, match it to yep. that technical side. Oh, yeah, um, match it to a pattern. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like to me, like the incremental development world kind of has, or just development in general, there's design, which we've been talking about. There's there's these other two components, right? There's policies and regulation around what can get built. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the zoning and land use laws. And then there's financing, which you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if most people are listening to this and they're familiar with strong towns, they're probably really familiar with the design side of things and the policy side of things. Like, okay, mm-hmm. we need to like... Mm-hmm. challenge parking minimums, challenge restrictive zoning, et cetera. But I feel like most people might still struggle with the financing side. So just from your experience and kind of from what you've learned, could you just give kind of like a basic rundown of why it's really important that we take the time to understand the relationship between financing and the viability or, or, or the feasibility of incremental development projects? The one thing that incremental development and traditional development shares is that it's it's still development, right? And so one of the one of the things that we like to espouse in our teachings um, is if you can't get the rent or if you can't get the sale, if you're going to sell it, then you can't build the building, right? And what what that essentially means is that if there's no back end exit strategy for you, whether you're going to hold it or you're going to sell the property, then there's really no financial justification for building that particular building in that way. And that's where the sort of scale comes in, right? Uh, a lot of folks, they get, you know, perhaps because it's taboo or they, they get a little frustrated with development because I think development is sort of got lumped into this like large bucket and all developers are bad. But mm-hmm. the thing that I tell people is that, I mean, if you really think about, you know, how a lot of our cities got their start. It was from small developers, right? Just individuals mm-hmm. having the opportunity to uh, to obtain a parcel of land and developing their life as they saw it, as they see it on that parcel, right? And before mm-hmm. you know it, all these incremental developers working in a concentrated area were, be, were able to build a city, 
and at the same time um build wealth for themselves right um and i think that's that that is the core reason why i think folks should care about the financing side of, of all this stuff is because no matter what type of development you're doing you know it takes money to do this stuff right like you can't you can't get around that i don't i don't care if it's if it's all cash or it's part subsidy like somebody's somebody's giving some money to get the project done that's that's unavoidable right and so knowing how that world works you know yeah. is is extremely important for any developer but particularly for small developers because you're going to have to navigate all these different benchmarks that different financing types sort of bring to the table and you have to decide as a small developer whether or not you want to venture beyond those thresholds right you're not necessarily doing that to a certain extent if you're you know a more mainstream developer right but if you're trying to be uh very strategic uh very local uh you're trying to take your time you need and you're trying to manage risk which is what it's really all about you need to be able to learn how to learn how projects get financed um so that you can sort of navigate that and make intelligent decisions about you know what these thresholds are and if you do to decide to go over them and then what that entails if you do go go over them right so financing is extremely important and you can't you, you can't get around it you know you just have to learn that side of the business right so would you say from your experience that the finance market for development projects is mostly oriented towards larger scale projects and larger scale developers yes both both the scale of the building but also the scale of the project because you can have a lot of financing mechanisms and products out there are tailored toward you know it's really massive a really massive building mm -hmm. or a really small building but build multiples of time in one concentrated mm -hmm. place right so okay you have the smaller end of the spectrum where you have a small building but just multiplied a billion times we can finance that or you have the really large building with the crap ton of units we can finance that building there's the more you get closer and closer to the middle the financing becomes few and far between there's even more gray areas right um and there's just a lot of uh i think nuances that people are just aren't just the, are, are not just aware of uh in terms of the financing that's out there but i say all that to say there can be and there should be a lot more financing for you know stuff that you know we we associate with things like missing middle and all that stuff there, there just needs yeah. to be more streamlined financing for that type of stuff in general um so i'm glad you mentioned missing middle because i'd love to hear more about what you're working on right now in detroit can you can you share about some recent projects that you're really excited about that you've completed or that you're currently working on yeah 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 Let's see. So, I mean, most of the work that I do in Detroit is, you know, doing uh, rehabs for uh, a lot of clients, uh, retrofits of large houses. They sort of fit into the lower end, the missing middle spectrum. So those are always exciting because I, I like working with those clients. My clients are usually local first time or second time developers. Um, um, and so it's it's almost like an educational process for them as well. And me being mm -hmm. an and like teaching and 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 building the brand of incremental development, small scale development. Um, that those are really exciting. In Midtown Detroit, I'm working on a cottage court project that has uh, multiples of typologies within it on a on a flag lot parcel uh, in Midtown Detroit. Uh, it's going to have 14 cottages, and it's going to be flanked by a really nicely detailed hostel building. Um, oh, cool. And the client, the client wanted to uh, again trying to diversify the housing offerings here. You know, we we have a we have a housing crisis just like most cities do. Um, and so one of the things that this particular client wanted to try was how can we a have design something that looks nice, has good urbanism, you know, good organization on a site. But and how can we design smaller units, but still not sacrifice on quality within those units? Mm -hmm. right? This is sort of what we were talking about before. I, I'm ex really excited about the, this project because, A, we're not doing a lot of it here. Actually, we're not. I don't know of any other new construction project that's being organized around a common green space, mm -hmm. uh, like, like multifamily project that's being organized around a common green space. So I'm excited to sort of help push the 
uh, the type typological discussion here in Detroit, the way we're sort of keeping and retaining some of the quality of lifestyle there is by um, not just having nicely detailed cottages, but making sure that the spaces around these cottages are nicely detailed as well. You know, um, and, you know, it has a lot of, you know, Jane Jacobs basics, eyes on the streets, making sure you have good demarcations between public and private space, you know, making sure eyesight, eye and sight lines are maintained and, and things like that. So I'm really excited about that project. Um, we're, we're going through the gauntlet of uh, the, the city processes and, and all that stuff. So, you know, that's, yay, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we can get through that. <laughs> you know, the, I think the other project that's worth mentioning here um, is a project that, I'm, um, that I think could be revolutionary for the entire state, uh, which is a, a pattern zone uh, pilot that I'm working on with um, my partner in crime, Matthew Petty, out of Arkansas, uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're contracted with the state of Michigan to uh, work with the city of Detroit and the Detroit uh, Land Bank to develop a pattern zone, which goes beyond pattern buildings. And I think that's people kind of get confused about the two. You know, you have pattern houses or pattern homes, which are just pre-designed homes. And what we're working on with the city is how can we take these pre-designed homes and have all the approvals already assigned to them? So the permit comes with your site plan review. Only thing you have to do, you don't have to go for any, uh, you know, before any BZA or get any zoning adjustments. You essentially purchase the purchase the land, purchase the parcel, and the building plans with it, and you're essentially ready to begin building. Right. This goes back into this sort of my ethos around incremental development and, and small scale development, and how we can make development easier for every mm-hmm. average folks. Right. How can we remove some of these obstacles that have been in uh, uh, that have been in the way of a lot of small scale developers actually doing projects? To where we can streamline that process, and that has all sorts of benefits, right? The the city gets gets uh, a tax base, that's great. Uh, local people that live in the city get you know have an opportunity to build wealth for themselves, and it just helps to build out the city in a very um, uh, beautiful way. And one of the things where we're embedding into these plans is these elements of urbanism that we talked about before, like making sure they're sited on the parcel properly, right? All that. Mm-hmm hopefully will be pre-approved with the city. So, you know, if we can get this off the ground in any city, uh, we're working, hopefully it'll be, it'll be off the ground in Detroit. That, that's our goal. Uh, but if not Detroit, uh, another city. Um, but I think it's revolutionary for small scale developers because it really begins to take away, uh, again, a lot of these obstacles that have been put in place, you know, decades ago that, that staunch and slow incremental development. And again, just allows folks to be those developers for our cities again, just like they were 200, 200, 250 years ago, right? When a lot of our cities got off the ground. Can you can you make the connection between having more incremental developers, more local developers, and just the overall like resilience of a city? You've come back to Detroit and you're really, inv- you know, you're doing these projects, you're helping people retrofit their homes. Like maybe the question I'm getting at is sort of like the so what question about behind incremental development. It's like, what does this have to do with building, with the city becoming more resilient, with becoming mm-hmm. able to sustain itself for long, you know, becoming yeah. stronger? How do you define that connection? What's the connection between having more people rehabbing homes, like building small yeah. homes, like building ADs and the city over the long run? emerging stronger? I think a lot of it, Tiffany, just comes back to, particularly in this day and age, when income and wealth discrepancies are so, so much more, there's that, that gap between the higher and lower ends is just widening, continuing to widen. I, I always think back to, you know, this is almost like philosophical, but like a lot of our, uh, the core tenets of our country have to do with, you know, land and who can who has the opportunity to own it and capitalize off of it. And so what I see in, in the development world is that the majority of folks that are able to do that are people that they're either these really, you know, you know, medium to large scale developers, the corporate types of developers, right? What that means to me is that, well, a lot of the wealth and the ownership of land and who's able to, to take advantage and benefit from the value of that development are, you know, corporate entities, right? And so 
you know, I think the so what for me is just like this is this is one of the most important ways and mechanisms we can use to begin to put wealth back in the hands of people. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, if 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 land as it does continue in homeownership uh, continues to be one of the key items that contains a lot of individual wealth, then we need to be able to reframe that whole realm so that not just the corporate entities and the, the the high net worth individuals can take advantage of that and benefit from that, but we need to be able to allow the you know the 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 three person family down the street who only has a little bit of capital but but still wants to live in and be a part of the resurgence of their neighborhood. We need to allow that to happen as well too, right? So I'm not advocating for a you know one over the other i think it's a both end there's a mm-hmm. there's space for the larger development you know in certain areas but a lot of our cities are built off of and are held together uh uh the fabric through just everyday folks right and they need to have the opportunities to to build you know their neighborhoods out in cahoots among themselves as they see fit as well right and I come yeah. with removal of regulations. Yeah, yeah. Say it like that. Yeah, it almost sounds like what you're saying is when you have dis- when you have distributed investment, when investment is distributed across many hands, that makes a stronger city, right? Um, versus yeah. Yeah, yeah. versus yeah. investment being consolidated with just a few. Yeah. But if you have, yeah, you know, hundreds of thousands of people yeah. invested in their neighborhood through property that they've developed, that just generates a type of buy-in and like not just financial investment, but like the investment of your heart mm-hmm. into the city yep. in a way, you know, yep. that that that's not possible when development becomes more and more consolidated yep. with just a few players that don't even live there. Right. You've kind of hinted at this already, but if you could just summarize like some of the challenges, what are some of the challenges that you face um, as an incremental developer in Detroit right now? I think a couple of them are, you know, we, we talked about some of them. I think it's funding opportunities, for this type of development, there's there's some pretty great CDFIs in the in the area that that are trying to fill those gaps, um, but you know again Detroit's a really big city. Um, there's a really great organization here that is that that operates kind of like uh, Incremental Development Alliance. It's called uh, Building Community Value Detroit, um, run by a gentleman named Chase Cantrell, and you know he his whole mission is teaching folks how to do a development project, how to, you know, do a duplex and all that stuff. But, you know, and he'll he'll be the first to tell you as well, you know, one of the biggest issues is just like funding and financing. A lot of banks here have, I think, unrealistic benchmarks that just because of the nature of the city that we live in, a lot of these folks won't hit those metrics, all right? Um, and so that's an obstacle. Um, Similar to other cities, I think it's the cost of construction. You know, I think that that hits us. I know that hits us really harder uh, compared to more, you know, established cities like, you know, you know, D.C. or Chicago, Boston, um, you know, L.A., all those places, because we just can't demand the rents that um, a lot of those folks can without having heavy subsidy. Mm-hmm. And the thing with subsidy that is that, um, you know, there's only so much subsidy to go around. Right. And I think the other thing is there, there, I think it goes back to regulations. I think there's a lot of sort of uh, ancient regulations on still on the books here. Um, we still have a lot of single family zoning. Um, there, there's a couple of ordinances in place now in the city of Detroit that have unrealistic expectations for improving property. I'll give you an example there's a lead program in, in in the in the city and not a lead pipe program, but a lead in terms of like lead paint program. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to completely remove the lead from uh, paint in the exact and best case scenario, the way I think a lot of the city wants you to do it would be completely cost prohibitive for a lot of buildings and, and homeowners and People that want to rent out buildings because um, these buildings are really old. Like th- we're talking hundred years old, right? And so, you know, there's there's other ways that you can encapsulate lead and paint and all that. But again, you're just put again putting more obstacles in the way of people that are just trying to get stuff off the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, although I I believe in I hold dear to like the best case scenario, what I'm 
thinking about it from a practical sense, like what can folks actually do to mm-hmm. improve their property, right? And it all, and most of the time, it is not the best case scenario, just because it's extremely cost prohibitive for yeah. these older buildings. And then, as I mentioned before, it's just the single family zoning uh, here. You know, we still we're, we're getting better. Um, we, we've we've toyed with versions of a form based code here and. Uh, there's some, there's certain areas that have been rezoned for you know some some more densification, but for for the most part, a lot of the city is still single family zoned, right? So that then that prohibits what you can actually do. Yeah, that's really insightful. So last two questions um, for people who might be listening to this and resonate with a lot of what you're saying, but maybe they're maybe they're like this is awesome, but I don't know that I'm actually a developer. I'd still would like to help. What advice, like maybe just like one or two practical steps that mm. people can do to help move forward the cause of incremental development? Um, what what practical tips would you would you uh, leave with us? Uh, great question. If you are walking down your street and you see uh, an abandoned building or, and it's probably, it's, it's in good shape, but no, nothing's in it, or you see an empty parcel on your block and you say to yourself, Somebody should do something with that. That somebody is probably you, right? <laughs> I think everybody can be a developer. Um, it really is all about scale. One of the great things that we teach in, in incremental development is that sometimes a development doesn't even have to be a building, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be you owning a parcel of land or collaborating with somebody who has land mm-hmm. and doing a, a, a tent business, right? Um, you know, the most rudimentary and basic um, of, of commerce is, you know, uh, bazaars, which still happen in a lot of places around the world. You mm. know, you have a product, you put up a tent so people feel <laughs> comfortable and you sell your product. That is a development. Right. Mm. Um, and so that's one of the one of the things we teach at the Incremental Development Alliance Alliance is essentially figuring out what your first smallest, less riskiest step is and do that. For some, that may be, again, doing something as simple as pitching a tent and selling something or getting a bunch of people around you if you're the one that owes the land and, you know, you have like a Saturday bazaar, right? And that begins to build momentum around that parcel. You can take that momentum and then, you know, in a year or two, develop something a little bit more intensive, right? You're managing Mm -hmm. the risk as you're taking these steps in development, right? And then I would absolutely advocate, you know, people take some sort of course, you know, potentially if you're if you're talking about and thinking about doing actual above ground construction or renovation, you you should take a simple real estate course. You know, it it may be Inc. Inc. Dev. We have a lot of different offerings. We have uh, workshops and seminars um, from four hours to eight hours, all the way up to boot camps that, you know, last an entire month that sort of really uh, uh, explain everything to you and, and have a lot of instructors walk you through the process step by step, right? So there's all different offerings for at all different scales, but there, there are a lot of other um, great organizations out there that are doing it as well too. But, you know, again, for anybody listening, just a basic crash course in how, um, how a pro forma works, how a building or a business within land or a building or real estate makes money is extremely important to know. You need to know how money flows to and through building to make money, how you come out on the opposite end of that that, that business venture, right? You need to understand that that mechanism, what the levers are. Um, So those I think would be the two things I would would, uh, suggest for anybody thinking about doing development or for those that don't think that they're developers and you probably <laughs> you just have to find, find your scale uh which you feel comfortable at yeah i i also want to i would add two things to that too just from my own experience in waco um paying attention to anything related to zoning in your city council meetings mm-hmm. you know there might be people who are kind of mm-hmm. like what you're saying around the need for zoning reform or land use reform, like there might be dev- small scale developers really trying to push for that and they could probably use the support. Yep. So if you, yeah. you know, that might even be a smaller baby step is find people who are doing this already and figure out how you can help them, how you can yeah, come you alongside can be them. A small developer advocate, you know what I mean? Yeah. Small, yeah. You, start, you know, 
Yeah. Okay. Last question. Probably one of my favorite questions. Um, if someone was coming to Detroit or let's say to even to your neighborhood uh, for a couple hours, stopping through on a road trip, where should they go? Where can they find like a good cup of coffee, um, some good food? What are, what are your recommendations? Mm. Oh, yeah. Local businesses. Um, yeah. So <laughs> you come to Detroit, you got to see the DIA. I'm just going to say that right off the bat. We got yes. Rembrandts and Van Gogh's. You got to go see that. It's absolutely amazing. Um, the neighborhood I live in is part of a collection of neighborhoods called Island View in the Villages. Um, and we've got a nice little main street that's been developed actually in the last 10 years. And they've got a it's perfect because it it's it reminds me of the lifestyle that I used to have in D.C. where I could just walk down the street and get a drink, cup of coffee, whatever the case, get some dinner. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, and I, I love my neighborhood. So you come to the Island View Villages, uh, you get in a cup of coffee at Red Hook. Um, on Agnes Street, a fantastic little shop. You're probably getting dinner at um, my favorite steakhouse, which is called Mero. Uh, It's a fantastic local uh, steakhouse. They get all of their their cattle or their steaks, their pork from local Michigan farms nearby. If you like West Indian food um, or Caribbean food, uh, you got to go to Young Village, uh, which is fantastic. They have the best sweet plantains ever. Um, oh, man. The curry, the curry goat is fire. Um, <laughs> You're making me yeah. miss my old neighborhood in Brooklyn. It was all West Indian. Yeah, and there was oh, this, there was this joint it. at the end of my street where oh, you get some... <laughs> one of those places where <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> yeah, I was terrified to go in there the first time because they don't put prices. I'm pretty sure they don't take card. No, and it was yeah. all just what, you know, like West Indian yeah. people inside there. And then I finally... Yeah. Finally mustered up the courage and, and you got and, comfortable. Yeah. Oh man. The business, right. Yeah. The best. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and then I would absolutely check out um our, our riverfront. Our riverfront for so long was uh a bunch of old industrial brownfield sites. And now um you can get from Bell Isle Bridge, and Bell Isle Park is a park designed by Frederick Law Olmstead. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get from the Bell Isle Bridge all the way to the western side of downtown, which is a hopefully I'm not quoting this wrong, but it's about five miles. And you can see this really nice picturesque view of the river and look at downtown Windsor, uh, Canada. It's it's the, the riverfront is like it, it is amazing now. There's all sorts of things to do at certain strategic stops along the riverfront. Uh, there's an amphitheater there, the Aretha, Aretha Franklin Amphitheater. There's a, a outdoor beach and um, um, and bar right off the riverfront. Like it's a great place to be and soak up some sun. For the few months that we get uh, some, <laughs> some sun in, in Detroit, yeah. So we're at the tail end of that there. So I might, I might, I might go down there after we get off uh, this podcast and and go grab a drink. You, now you've inspired yourself to go back have, and get a drink. You've inspired me too. Now yeah, I want to, I, I want to visit. Marcus, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me, to share your insights and your story. And thank you to our audience for listening. Um, We will be back in two weeks with another episode of The Bottom Up Revolution. If there's someone in your community that you think would be a great fit for the show, please nominate them using the Suggest a Guest form in the show notes. Uh, Also in the show notes, you will find links to more about Marcus, more about his work, more about the Incremental Development Alliance. And I will also add Lintastic City, that is Detroit. So thanks everybody and thanks Marcus. Thanks guys.